Have you ever thought uh, much about what God wants? Or perhaps found yourself asking, what is God's will for my life? Maybe you've wondered what it takes to please God, what it takes to get to heaven. And if you've thought much about those things, you've probably spent some time asking yourself whether or not you'll be there. And these are not new questions. Anybody who's really taken the time to ask those questions seriously has found themselves in the shoes um, of perhaps a David who wrote Psalm 24, which was just written or just uh, read for us. King David in that psalm is asking and answering that question. He said it like this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He was referring about being where God was manifesting his presence to Israel at the tabernacle. However, the question would apply to us as we contemplate what it takes to be in God's presence forever. In other words, how can someone dwell with God? What does that take? And his answer is in the very next verse. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. Plainly put, David is saying that only a righteous person, only a holy person, only a pure person can be in the presence of God. And it sounds an awful lot like Jesus' answer to the same question. We are in Matthew 5, and we are in the Beatitudes. And this is a very strategic place that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. He's painting a word picture here. He's describing brushstroke by brushstroke, word by word, what kind of a person the Christian is. And he does it at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because he wants to make perfectly clear that the only kind of person that the Sermon on the Mount applies to is the person who's come to grips with the fact that they can't live out the Sermon on the Mount on their own. It's only the person who recognizes that the standards are too high, the holiness is too exacting, the ability of anybody on this earth is not up to par. So he gets all question of self-righteousness out of the way here in the Beatitudes before he presses on to describe the Christian life in detail. And today we'll read verses 3 through 8 and we'll focus in on verse 8, which is the sixth Beatitude. So read along with me, if you will. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what kind of a person can dwell with God? Well, according to Jesus, only a person with a pure heart. And that's exactly the sense of the beatitude in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, and only they, shall see God. And that automatically puts us on high alert, because I don't know anybody who believes in God who would much prefer to be in the blessedness of his presence than to be cast away and suffer condemnation for sin. Which brings us to the heart of the matter. Because as Jesus said, purity isn't something ceremonial, outward, or having to do with a bath. 
the way that Pharisees were so consumed with thinking. No, purity is a matter of the heart. So let's ask, what is the heart? Well, if we listen to the virtue signalers in New York and Hollywood, we're supposed to follow our heart. If we take our cues from the Titanic, our heart will go on. <laughs> Pop philosophers tell us that the heart wants what it wants, and the implication is we should follow it. But what is it? Well, we, asso we associate it so often with our emotions, with feelings, and we think of it as something of a feminine kind of a thing. Men don't stereotypically deal too well in matters of the heart, and if they do, we think it kind of odd, somewhat unmanly. Send the kid to mom if they need heart matters dealt with. But Jesus spent his whole ministry dealing with matters of the heart, and he is the ultimate man. So let's look to his word and get past all our baggage about the heart to ask, what does he mean when he says, blessed are the pure in heart? Because that is what will unlock for us the riches of the sixth beatitude. And I'd suggest to you three things that we need to know about the heart in order to write out this beatitude where God intends for it to take us. The first is this. The heart is the whole inner person. The heart is the whole inner person. The heart absolutely involves our emotions. Our feelings come from the heart. But not only our feelings, our thoughts arise from our hearts how we think about life, how we see the world, how we interpret the events that are going on all around us and are happening to us, our heart issues. It includes our will, our intentions for how we will live and what we'll do. These are heart issues. When God sent the global flood of Noah's day, he did it in response to the hearts of people at that time. So we see Moses recording for us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we see thoughts, we see intentions, we see inner matters. That's what's in view when the Bible talks about the heart of people. It's their whole inner person. Now, it would be a misunderstanding for us to try to divide people into so many different parts, body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, and on and on it goes. There are many different views about who we are as humans. And the Bible does use many terms like soul and spirit and heart, mind, and will. All of these are biblical terms, but they refer compositely to this inner person, the same type of a thing that Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. We're told that in the beginning, God created the man from the dust of the earth. That's his body. And that by direct breath of the spirit, he was given the breath of life. That's his soul or his spirit. We have outer life and inner life, physical and spiritual, as we're made in the image of God. And that's it. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. He's saying, blessed are those who are pure all the way down. Not just outside, but their whole inner person is pure. It's who you really are deep down inside. The pure person all the way down who is the pure in heart. Well, the second thing we need to know about the heart is that it is desperately sick. This is, this is a bleak situation. I didn't make it up. 
See, if our hearts are who we are all the way down, then who we are is so corrupt in sin that the Apostle Paul tells us that we are all of us born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. The Lord famously once said through the prophet Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, friends, our hearts have a condition, and it's fatal. You could call it spiritual congenital heart failure. We're born pledging allegiance to our own right to rule our lives as we please, and we have no interest naturally in following God or submitting to him. And that's the opposite of being pure in heart. The heart is the whole inner person, desperately sick and beyond our ability to heal. And not only this, but the heart is the wellspring of life. Solomon, who was famous for his in-depth study of humanity and the world and everything in it, including matters of the heart, wrote in Proverbs 4, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. From it flow the springs of life. In other words, if you want to know why you are the way you are, why you do the things you do, why you have the hang-ups that you do, why you struggle with some things and not others, why your personality is the way that it is, then realize, in biblical terms, it's because of your heart. It is from there that these things flow. The best way to know someone's heart is to watch their words and to watch their lives. I think millions of dollars on psychological research and therapy could be saved if we would just learn this lesson that Jesus taught. He said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The heart is the whole inner life, desperately sick, and it gives rise to our whole lives. So that's the heart. It's what Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. It's those who are pure inwardly to the very core who he says will see God. But given what we've just seen about the heart, all of our hearts, that we have a humanly incurable condition, and perhaps our automatic reaction to blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, might be something like this. We're in big trouble. Could we agree on that? Of ourselves, we are in big trouble. Only the pure in heart will see God, which is another way of saying that only the pure in heart are headed to heaven. So what is to be done? Is a pure heart even possible? Or is Jesus just stringing us along? And if it's possible, what does it take? What does pursuing purity look like? Well, you need to have two kinds of purity firmly fixed in both your mind and your life. If you are to be one of those who will see God. You can't do without either one and getting the order right is critical. Because if we don't get the order of these two types of purity correct, then we will not only miss the point of the Sermon on the Mount, we will miss heaven. And so the first kind of purity we need to keep in priority as far as order and deeply embedded in our minds is what we could call positional purity. It's positional purity. This has to do with, you guessed it, it's our position 
before God. It's our position before God. See, this is what happens to a person who has a desperately sick soul when that person is born again. When the Holy Spirit makes an old person new, not old in age, but as in spiritually dead, makes them spiritually alive, this positional purity is exactly what happens. To use biblical terms, the heart of stone is made into a heart of flesh. The heart is cleansed by the Spirit of God. And this is precisely what the prophet Ezekiel was talking about in the New Covenant. The Lord speaking through Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The biblical term for this is regeneration. This is regeneration. It's the new birth. It's the moment when a spiritually dead sinner is made spiritually alive and places their faith in Jesus Christ. No longer are they offering to God their best efforts in order to secure God's favor because they realize that any best efforts from an impure heart results in impure efforts, impure works, righteousness that is as filthy rags before a perfect and holy God. So the regenerated man or woman, recognizing this, goes to the only place they can go, to Jesus Christ. They are the poor in spirit that Jesus begins the Beatitudes by talking about. They now mourn over their sin that they once loved, and they hate it, and they yearn to be rid of it. And they find comfort in Jesus, who says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He gives them his own righteousness in exchange for their filthy rags. And the term for that is justification. Justification, when the sinner is made righteous, is justified before the throne of God. And what do justified people do? Well, according to the Beatitudes, they meekly submit themselves, themselves to the will of God. And they seek to please and honor him and trust in him. And this produces a new temperament toward others. Rather than being bitter, hard-hearted, and grumpy towards others, now they extend the same mercy to others that God has extended to them. Blessed are the merciful. And what is a person like that before a perfect and holy God? Well, because God has given to them the righteousness of Christ, they are positionally pure. They have a right standing before God. They are born again. They are declared righteous. And this is absolutely essential because without this positional purity, without the righteousness of Christ in full given to a sinner, there can be no salvation. Well, just as being shown mercy by God makes a man merciful, so being purified by Christ has a purifying effect day to day. And this, I think, is the thrust of what Jesus is saying in this beatitude. Blessed are those who live pure and holy lives from the inside out. We could call this practical purity. There is no two-faced Christianity about it, no hypocrisy, no deceit. Just a sinner saved by grace, changed at the heart level, and living out their love for Christ from a new heart. 
See, the word purity has fallen on hard times. Uh, oftentimes, it's almost exclusively associated with sexual purity, avoiding sexual sin. 20 years ago in high school, purity rings were a big thing. If you had a purity ring, it was your commitment that you wouldn't have sex before marriage. But the biblical picture of purity is so much richer than this, so much wider, so much deeper. Looking at the word Jesus uses for pure is actually pretty illuminating because the term would often refer to um, refining metals, metals that have impurity in them. A jeweler would melt them down, would refine them, and go through this process where all the impurities were removed, and the result was a metal that was unmixed. It was a single metal, no kind of alloy or any other thing in there to kind of bulk it up. It was just pure metal through and through. The word we might associate with this is integrity. And the idea is having a single heart, a single heart. We'll call this single-heartedness. This is the central idea of purity as it pertains to the heart. There's no mixed motives in the pure in heart. They are in public, what they are at home, what they are before God, what they are in private. They worship the Lord in spirit and truth. As our call to confession said today, the pure in heart abhor what is evil and they cling to what is good with single-hearted devotion to Christ. And this is precisely what Paul was expressing when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. That, as we heard preached last week, is the heart cry of a person who is single-heartedly set on Jesus. Whether they live or die, Christ and him alone. And I think there's no scriptural prayer that more fully encompasses this single-hearted aspect of purity than David's in Psalm 86 and verse 11. Teach me your way. O oh Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Those who have been purified through faith in Jesus Christ go on to seek and live lives of single-hearted devotion to Christ. Another way of looking at this and filling out the portrait of single-hearted purity is to consider that the pure in heart are always seeking holiness. They're always seeking holiness. The chief evidence of an unmixed heart, a single-hearted devotion to Christ, is a life that is spent in the pursuit of holiness. Now, if the word purity has fallen on hard times, then it would seem that holiness is all but forgotten in so many corners of the church today. But thanks be to God, Jesus is clear, and his word is faithfully preached. And wherever that happens, holiness will not be far behind, because you can't get too far into Christianity, such as even through the door, without realizing that it involves taking up your cross, denying yourself, which is saying no to sin, and following Jesus. So what do we mean by holiness? Well, one grave misunderstanding about holiness, which undercuts the whole process for so many people, is the idea that it equals perfection. Holiness does not equal perfection. There is one perfect person, Jesus Christ, and his call to his followers to be holy does not mean to be perfect, otherwise we'd have no need of his perfection and his righteousness. Too many people hear the word holiness and immediately think they cannot be holy because they cannot be perfect. Well, on the other hand, there are whole denominations and theologies that teach that believers can be practically perfect in every way. But that has more to do with Mary Poppins than it does with biblical Christianity. 
We can't read our Bibles with clear, open eyes and see the idea that anybody could be practically perfect in any way. Far from it. Paul in the seventh chapter of Romans says, I don't understand the things I do. I do not do the things I want, but the very things I hate are the things I keep on doing. Woe is me, wretched man that I am. What hope is there? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's dangerously naive to think that we can be perfect in this life. And it makes far too much of man and far too little of how bad our condition apart from Christ really is. Rather, if we would understand holiness, I'd boil it down for you like this. Becoming more like Jesus. That's holiness, is becoming more like Jesus. The theological term for that is sanctification. But if we can remember becoming more like Jesus, then we'll understand a thing or two about holiness. It is absolutely essential in the Christian life. As much as positional purity is first in priority and absolutely essential, so is practical purity. Increasingly putting off sin and increasingly putting on Jesus. Identifying where we walk away from God and seeking his grace to walk with him more. It's so central that without it, there can be no true conversion, no salvation. Not because we are saved by our practical purity. No, that's what the positional purity of Jesus for us is all about. But because the chief evidence of our positional purity will be this practical pursuit of holiness. And so the author of Hebrews put it very memorably, very starkly, in fact, when he said, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you hear that? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And what does our Lord say in the sixth beatitude? Blessed are the pure in heart. In other words, happy are the holy, for they shall see God. This is the practical purity that comes about in the life of everyone whose heart has been purified by God at salvation. And this rings so true to what Jesus is doing here in the entire Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? If you'd remember, the, the whole main point of this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is that those who are saved look like their Savior. And then consider these two aspects of what it means to be pure in heart. To have a single-hearted devotion to God expressed in a life of seeking holiness. And whose portrait has just been painted for us? Jesus. He had single-hearted devotion to God, and he had a life of holiness. We're told by the Apostle Peter that Jesus has a united heart with, with no division, no deceit, no hypocrisy. There was no unholiness in his life because he set his heart on doing the will of God, even when that, even when that meant going to a cross to die a death he didn't deserve so that sinners like us who did deserve it could be forgiven. Peter writes, he committed no sin, that's holiness. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, that's single-heartedness. And now bring this to bear on the sixth beatitude, and we see pretty clearly that seeking a pure heart is seeking the pure one. Seeking a pure heart is seeking Jesus, whose heart is pure. And the result is that he purifies those who place their faith in him. 100% of the time. That is biblical Christianity. Now let me apply this in a very practical way. If you would be seeking holiness, then you must be abhorring sin. 
That's what Paul told us in Romans 12. If you, if you be seeking holiness, you must be abhorring sin because sin and holiness are mutually exclusive. They are hostile arch nemeses. They cannot peacefully coexist. And one of the most deep-seated heresies in the church today is that we can have our holiness or our, our Jesus and abandon holiness. We can have our Savior but not have our Lord. We don't need to give any thought to purity as Christians because we've been purified by Jesus, but that is no gospel. The gospel that saves is the gospel that purifies. Ours is a very flippant age, and I believe that each one of us is more bewitched by the spirit of the age than we realize, and this has always been a danger to Christians, which is one of the reasons, I think, that so many heroes throughout church history have landed on the wrong side of some issues that to us on this side of it look pretty clear. And what will the church in a hundred years think of where we landed on some things? Which is another reason why going to legalism is the exact opposite of where we need to go. We must realize that in that context, God is lavishing more grace on us day by day than we could possibly imagine. Remember what Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. Who can know it? Well, God knows it. And it's to hearts like that that he offers his grace and says, follow me. And that being said, one of the greatest traps I see crouching at the doors of our hearts is that of flirting with or minimizing sin. I find myself falling into that trap and I know I'm not alone. It's the attitude of I'll just engage this a little bit, even though I have no business doing so, I'll go down that path a little ways, but not too far, I can see the warning signs. And that's been precisely the way that millions of Christians have been enslaved to pornography or addictions of various kinds and how million more professing believers have become so calloused to life habits that suck all spiritual vitality out of their love for Christ that they wake up one day and said, where is my first love? Well, it happened with one small flirtation with sin at a time. The reality of it is that if our hearts are not being tuned to grace, they will be tuned to the world Middle and high schoolers, I would beg you pay special attention here because this is exactly that crucial point at which so many of your peers leave the church at the age of 18 and never return because they never took holiness seriously. And they walked away from a Jesus they didn't end up realizing they had any need for. But whatever our age, we must take holiness seriously. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Imagine what a different story we'd read in Genesis if Joseph had just flirted a little bit here or there with Potiphar's wife. I'm sure she was a cutie. He will have lost his robe in the end, but it wouldn't be running out the door, it'd be running into bed. Or what of Job, who was able to say in the midst of suffering, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? See, Job knew something very true. Where our eyes go, our hearts follow. He, like Joseph, would not underestimate the power of sin. And look what confidence it gave him, even in the midst of insane suffering. He was able to say, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. See, Job knew that he had sought holiness. 
that he had a pure heart. Not a perfect heart, but a pure one, a single-hearted focus on his God, his Redeemer. And he had a hope as a result that he would see God with his own eyes. Job understood that back then. Somewhere in the time of Abraham, the saints have always known, we will see God. Which brings us to the amazing promise of our beatitude today. The pure in heart shall see God. Let that sink in for a moment. When we look through our Bible and we see what the result has been every time God has revealed himself in power to a person, it is a startlingly amazing thing that God would say to us, we shall see him. I'd suggest there are two ways that the pure in heart shall see God. The first is now, the second is then. Can we remember that? First is now, the second is then. See, when we're born again and given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, our spiritually dead souls become spiritually alive. Our spiritually blind eyes become spiritually open, and we start to behold things about God in a way that we could never conceive of before because we didn't have the heart for it. This isn't physical vision, and it certainly doesn't mean having dreams and visions of Jesus like many charismatic theologies claim to have today. No, this is rather the kind of spiritual sight that Moses enjoyed. The author of Hebrews, when talking about faith, which is the, the means by which we see God now, Moses, he says, saw God by faith. In verse 27 of chapter 11, it says, By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do you see him who is invisible? You see him by faith. We see him by faith now as we look into the scriptures. And when we press into his presence in prayer and worship, we see God corporately by faith on our Sunday morning gatherings, in our small group meetings. And this seeing by faith now has a purifying effect, and it brings with it the promise that we will see God then, when our Lord returns or we die and go to be with him by sight. We see him by faith now, and we see him by sight then. So Hebrews 11 says that God is invisible. So does 1 Timothy 1, 17 and 6, 16. This is a unifying message of scripture that God is invisible. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians that the Lord is spirit. Moses prayed to the Lord and said, let me see your glory. And God said, I will show you my glory, but I will show you my backside for no man may see my face and live. So all through scripture, we understand this about God, that we can't see him the way we can see other things. God chooses when and how he will reveal himself. And we see that when he does, it is glorious. And keeping in mind one hand that God is invisible and we cannot see him and live, on the other hand, we see that he does visibly manifest his glory and his presence throughout history. He manifested himself in a cloud and in a pillar of fire to the people of Israel. Imagine what a sight that would be. Next time you're reading the Pentateuch, look through all the times that God reveals himself with visible, invisible ways. It's just amazing. Use your imagination when you're reading the scriptures. It becomes a different experience. The elders of Israel went up with Moses on Mount Sinai, and it says they dined before God and beheld him. 
And Paul tells us, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, face to face. So consider the fact that while scripture teaches the invisibility of God, God also chooses to whom he will reveal himself. And when he does, he is visible in some way. And the fullness of his revelation of himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. The old covenant passed away. The new covenant was inaugurated. And when it was inaugurated, it was inaugurated visibly as God took on flesh. And so when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, his hearers are seeing God. And the best vision by far is yet to come. Three of his apostles had a foretaste of it at the transfiguration. Jesus promises that the pure in heart will see God. And if the primary focus of the sixth beatitude is on a life of holiness here on earth, then the primary focus of this promise of seeing God is in seeing him when we pass into his presence. This is what theologians refer to as the beatific vision. The beatific vision comes from the same Latin word that we get the word beatitude. It is the blessed vision of God when we see his glory directly on the other side. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for right before he would be arrested and tortured and crucified for our salvation so that we could even have a shot at that vision. And not only a shot, but an assurance because he said it is finished. The vision was secured for the people of God. He prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. This is Jesus' prayer for you that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. If you have been purified by faith in Christ, then you are seeking to walk in holiness with the Lord and his promise to you is that you will see him by faith now and you will see him by sight then. And so we see the main idea of this sixth beatitude. What it's all about is this. The Christian is set on seeking Christ and sees him today by faith and forever by sight. The Christian is single-heartedly set on seeking Christ and will see him today by faith and tomorrow by sight. And so I'd ask, how's your vision? How's it doing? Have you recognized the desperate condition of your heart and your need for the purifying grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you? I pray that all who recognize that they've never come to terms with their own spiritual blindness would this day be given the new heart, would see their need for the Savior and see him for the first time by faith. He is there for you, calling, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And one day, you will see him face to face. And if you're someone who knows that you have not come to grips with that, if you have not apprehended by faith the only hope of your soul, then please come talk with me or Dennis or another church leader today because there is no more urgent matter for you to do business with than to come to grips with your God whom you will one day stand before, either face to face in glory, in blessedness, or in the consciousness of punishment in his wrath. Please, I would implore you, see God.
And if you are one of those whose heart has been made new, has been purified by the Holy Spirit through the grace of God, I would ask you to consider how is your war with sin going? Day to day, could you say that your soul is at war with sin? I think you know the answer to that. The Spirit will give you grace to know. How's your practical purity and chasing after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? This isn't a legalism thing. It's a grace thing through and through. We chase him because he first chased us. I would leave you with these words from the Apostle John, who plainly says that as we behold the Lord by faith now, it will have a blessedly practical, purifying effect on our hearts so that when we see him, we'll be ready for it. The apostle says, beloved, we are God's children now. Can I get an amen to that? Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Because he has purified us, by his grace, we purify ourselves for him. Please pray with me. Jesus, you say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we praise you for saying it. We praise you that it is true. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you sent your son to declare these things to us so that we might have hope, so that we may see the futility of our own efforts at making ourselves righteous, pure, and holy, that we would be cast upon your grace from first to last, knowing that you who began the good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Oh, may it be said of us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. May it be true of us that we would long so much for that blessed vision yet to come, that we would be more intent on gazing into who you are as you are held out for us in the scriptures, more focused and zealous to be about the good works that you've prepared for us, more diligent, motivated in our efforts with your help to be putting sin to death because Jesus was put to death for our sin. Lord, if there are any complacent hearts here, please stir them up, awaken them. And if any have never seen their need for the Savior, open their eyes, please. It is your good pleasure that we would be holy. You've said it in so many places. Please grant us that striving after holiness without which we will not see you. And do more, Lord, we pray, than just bring it about. Make it beautiful to us. Give us an appetite for it. May sin be increasingly disgusting to us. Please tune our hearts to your grace and give us hearts of wisdom and compassion as we walk through a sinful world, seeking that others might know and come to embrace the Holy One. It is for the sake of Jesus Christ we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and for your glory, Father. Amen.